And today we're talking about comparing. I was thinking about the way we can, and we tend to uh, play the comparison game and the way it can hinder the formation of community. As you know, school is in full swing, and that means that parent-teacher conferences are going on. And so what are the odds that there would be parents in El Dorado who would meet with a teacher and ask, how is my kid doing? And then have a teacher say, I'd say about average. Your kid is right in the middle of the pack. And then the parents go to their kid's soccer coach. How's my kid doing? Your kid's about average. Half are better, half are worse. And then they go to the kid's tutor who specializes in uh, prepping kids, seven-year-olds, for the SATs. And they ask, how's my kid doing? And they say, I think you can expect right about the 50th percentile. So what are the odds that a parent in El Dorado responded to that by saying, that's great. I have a normal kid. My kid is average. He's right in the old sweet spot of God's bell curve. Not likely. And it turns out when we ask the question, how's my kid doing? There's always a little condition, a little stipulation that's attached. It's the phrase compared to the other kids. We have a way of measuring our performance, our identity, our worth, our value compared to the other kids. When I was in elementary school, we got assigned into reading groups based on how well we could read compared to the other kids. Now, they would never tell you this, but you could tell because the groups were named for birds. There would be groups like the eagles and the robins and the pigeons. Now, if you were in the pigeon reading group, you knew you weren't killing it. And it's so odd, but we have a way of identifying our worth and our performance and value based on how we do. Um, now, comparing itself isn't a bad thing. In fact, it's an inevitable part of learning. That's how kids figure out this ball is bigger than that ball, or a rabbit runs faster than a tortoise, or I can get a better deal on jewelry for my wife's birthday from Dollar General than from Tiffany's. We learn by comparing. But when I start to compare myself with another person, my ego gets involved. And my ego wants me to be exalted over another person. My ego feels like I'm going to be diminished if another person is enhanced. My ego starts to whisper to me about envy and jealousy and gets me competitive. When I compare myself to other people, or when I do that, I, I, and, and if I do better than somebody, then I feel superior and puffed up. And that kills love. And that kills community. And if I grade myself worse, then I feel unworthy and inferior. And that kills love in me also. And community dies here too. We do this to ourselves. It's not even teachers or parents that do, us, do this to us anymore. We do it to ourselves. Because we don't want today's message to be just abstract or a hypothetical, um, I want to invite you to reflect for a moment on yourself and whether you ever do this. So we're going to do a mass confession. Last week we did a mass confession and went really, really well. And so we're going to do it again. And I'm going to run through a few categories. If you've ever compared yourself, I'm going to ask you just to raise your hands, okay? So if you've ever compared yourself to someone else on the basis of appearance, things like hair or teeth or physique or anything like that, or intelligence, grades, or GPA, if you've ever compared your career to someone else's career, if you've ever compared your house to somebody else's house, if you've ever compared your car to somebody else's car, 
your girlfriend or boyfriend or spouse to somebody else's, your kids, how you're doing as a parent, even your spiritual life. Okay, if you've ever in any way compared yourself to anybody else, raise your hand really high right now. Just raise them up high. That's what I thought. This is a sick church. Okay, now how many of you would say, yeah, I've done all that, but I'm probably better at it than most people. There is a toxic competition in our day. And we all want to know, am I in the eagles or am I in the robins or am I in the pigeons? And this actually goes way back in history and runs all through the Bible. So what I want to do in this talk, we're going to walk through several scenes, several stories in the Bible and in life. And look at why it is that comparing myself to other people is such a miserable, toxic, anti-kingdom way to live. And then we're going to look at how to get freed from that. How can I live in the incomparable, the incomparable kingdom of God? This sin, comparing myself to other people, is actually at the root of the second sin in the Bible. Now, a lot of you know the first sin, Adam and Eve ate the fruit from the forbidden tree. Okay, the second sin involves a couple of brothers, Cain and Abel. And this is what we're told. This goes all the way back in Genesis. The text says, in the course of time, Cain brought some of the fruits of the soil as an offering to the Lord. And Abel also brought an offering, fat portions from some of the firstborn of his flock. And the Lord looked with favor on Abel and his offering, but on Cain and his offering, he did not look with favor. So Cain was very angry, and his face was downcast. The first thing we wonder when we read through the story is why Abel's offering was looked upon with favor and Cain's wasn't. Most likely, it goes back to that word firstborn. Abel offered some of the firstborn. Later in this series, we'll talk about giving and generosity and even tithing. Now, we don't offer our tithes, We bring our tithes to God because they belong to God. God loves it when we make generosity a priority. So he would teach his people to give, but not just some, but the first fruits of the harvest or firstborn of the flock. Right off the top, the first thing you do is say, God, here's here's my tithe. It's yours. I want to make generosity a priority. Abel does that. Cain doesn't. He just brings some. And the implication is he's doing it out of an obligation or with a grudging heart or because he thinks he has to. So Abel experiences what it is that generosity does in a heart. He trusts God and he loves God and he's living in the reality of God's favor and dependence on God. And God loves that. God loves generosity because God is a generous God. But Cain shuts himself off from that. Cain sees this joy in Abel, and it grates on him. And this is so interesting. Cain gets angry, but not at himself. You know, Cain doesn't say, come on, Cain, you could do better. He didn't get mad at God either. He gets mad at his brother Abel. He thinks, if Abel wasn't around, I wouldn't be feeling this pain. And there's comparison at the very beginning of the Bible. It's so interesting. And then uh, God speaks to Cain. The text says, Then the Lord said to Cain, Why are you angry? Why is your face downcast? If you do what is right, will you not be accepted? But if you do not do what is right, sin is crouching at your door, 
It desires to have you, but you must master it. It's a fascinating story. God kind of plays therapist to Cain. You know, there were no therapists back in that day, so God is playing Cain's therapist. And he asks them, why are you so angry? Why is your face so downcast? If you do what's right, won't you be accepted? But Cain won't respond to any of these questions. What happens for Cain is he dehumanizes his brother and doesn't see him as a brother. He just sees him as a problem. The real question God is posing, and a good one for you and me, when we start comparing ourselves is, what do I really want? What do I really want? You see, what Cain wanted in his best self, in his truest self, was to be a generous person. He, would, he wants to trust God. He would want to love his brother and be a good brother himself. But Cain doesn't want to deal with those questions. And we're that way. In our best selves, we'd want what's noble. But over time, we quit asking questions. We don't ask that question anymore. It's so fascinating. The text says that God asked Cain these questions, but Cain does not respond back to God. Here's the next verse. Now Cain said to his brother Abel, let's go out to the field. There's a world of hurt and sin in that line. Now for the first time, Cain has to deceive his brother. He has to say this like, this is what brothers do. He has to teach his face in the tone of his voice in his body to deceive. While they were in the field, Cain attacked his brother and killed him. This theme of deception and falsehood in comparison runs all through the human race. Years ago, an author by the name of Neil Plantiga wrote about two young women in Iowa, Cindy and Sonia. And they were both lovely. They would sometimes compete in beauty pageants. Cindy was Miss Harvest Queen, and Sonia was Homecoming Queen. And they both liked the same guy, a guy by the name of Jim. But Jim ultimately rejected Cindy and married Sonia. And it just festered. It was killing Cindy. She couldn't stand to think of her rival getting what she wanted and being happy. So she took a leather belt. And one night, Miss Harvest Queen strangled the Homecoming Queen. And the whole town was left devastated. All through the human race and all through the Bible, this toxicity of how come you have what I want runs. So two brothers, Isaac and Ishmael, uh, are estranged from each other. And two more brothers in the next generation, Jacob and Esau, are estranged from each other. And this is what the text says about them. It says, Esau became a skillful hunter, a man of the open country, while Jacob was a quiet man, staying among the tents. Isaac, the father, who had a taste for wild game, loved Esau. But Rebekah, the mom, loved Jacob. And there's a world of hurt in these words. Parents sometimes will do this weird kind of thing. You know, he's the athletic one. He's the outdoors one. He's the indoor one. Why would I craft my kid's identity based on what their brother or sister happened to be like? You know, so if, if they happen to be, uh, uh, if you happen to have a clumsy sibling and you happen to be athletic, then, then that's how the naming goes. But if you get a really coordinated sibling, then you're not the athletic one anymore. Parents do this kind of thing all the time and it can be really painful. 
And then there's Joseph and his brothers. And envy and rivalry is in that story. Another story involves Israel's first king, Saul. And we're told, this is another comparative phrase, that Saul stood head and shoulders above every man. He was the king. And he names David to be a warrior, a general for him. And then they go out in the battle, and the battle goes really well. And here's what happens next. The text says, The women came out from all the towns of Israel to meet King Saul with singing and dancing, with joyful songs and tambourines and lutes. As they danced, they sang, Saul has slain his thousands and David his tens of thousands. Saul was very angry. This this refrain displeased him greatly. Well, why was Saul displeased? Well, for one thing, it's a really lame song. I mean, the lyrics are bad, and it was actually sung to the tune of, it's a small world after all. Saul has slain his thousands after all. David has slain his tens of thousands after all. Sing it again, you know? I mean, it would drive anybody crazy, right? But that's not the reason it displeases Saul so much. And this is why it displeased him. It says, they have credited David with tens of thousands, he thought, but me with only thousands. What more can he get but the kingdom? And from that time on, Saul kept a jealous eye on David. You know, the Hebrew language would often express itself in very concrete, very physical ways. So Saul isn't just jealous. He keeps a jealous eye in comparisons that way. When I start to get jealous, I look at you differently. I don't see my brother. I don't see somebody I love. I just see a person who creates pain in me. Why are you so angry, Saul? I'm afraid. What more could he have but my kingdom? Something, this, something precious is at risk. But you see, in the kingdom of God with Jesus, nothing precious is ever at risk. But where there's comparison and envy, there's fear. Why are you so angry, Saul? I'm offended. They should have credited David. They credited David with uh, tens of thousands, but me with only thousands. Are you kidding me, Saul? Who's they? Well, everyone. Saul, what do you care what everybody thinks? You're the king. You're the man. David works for you. If he wins, you win. But Saul is so consumed with envy that eventually he tries to kill David. Of course, this is often the way it works in life. The very thing Saul fears the most, the loss of his kingdom, is what ends up happening. Precisely because of the grasping, clutching, jealous, comparative way in which Saul lives. It'll kill you. It does all the time. But there's another way. There's a better way. In the New Testament, we're told there was a man sent from God and his name was John the Baptist. He has a message. Repent, for the kingdom of God is at hand. And then one day, John sees Jesus and says to the people who see him, Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. Then people begin going to Jesus. Then the strangest thing happens. Some of John's disciples come to him and they say, Rabbi, that man who was with you on the other side of the Jordan, the one you testified about, well, he is baptizing and everyone is going to him. It's very interesting. John has disciples just like Jesus has disciples. 
John is called rabbi just as Jesus is called rabbi. John baptized people just as now Jesus is baptizing people. John's disciples say, hey, remember, we used to be number one. We were the most prominent. Everybody was coming to see us. And now Jesus, the guy you baptized, is becoming more popular than you are, and everybody's going to see him. The more people go to you, the more important you are. And we're your disciples. So if you're becoming less important, then that means that we're becoming less important. We don't like this, so you better do something to recapture market share. And that comparison deal goes on even in spiritual arenas, even in ministry. Every year I go to the Midwinter Conference for the Covenant. It's our annual pastor's conference. And during one of the breaks, a few of us were talking to each other. We're all pastors. And one of them said to the other one, how's your church going? Now, for those of you who don't know, that's pastor talk for how many people go to your church. You know, that's pastor talk for how effective are you? And the first guy's like, a thousand people, something like that. How's your church? And the second guy said, 1,200 people. I knew what was coming next. At Hope Covenant, we run about 160 people on a Sunday. And my immediate thought was, I'm going to say we're like a 200 because that'll sound much more impressive than 160. And do you know how your mind works in a moment like that? I thought, seriously, John? I may never see them again. I don't even know these guys. Do I really want to give up my integrity for the sake of status gained by 40 measly people? So I said, we run about 2,000. I figured if I was going to sacrifice my integrity, I might as well, you know, make it worthwhile. So back to the story. So John the Baptist disciples say, we used to be the go-to place for preaching and effectiveness. And now everybody's going to him. And I know that feeling. And look at John's response here. It's unbelievable. He says, a person can receive only what is given them from heaven. You yourselves can testify that I said, I am not the Messiah, but am sent ahead of him. The bride belongs to the bridegroom. The friend who attends the bridegroom waits and listens for him and is full of joy when he hears the bridegroom's voice. That joy is mine, and it is now complete. He must become greater. I must become less. And this has kingdom all over it. You know, don't worry about who's in the eagles and who's in the robins and who's in the pigeons. He says, I know who I am. And that begins with who I am not. I am not the Messiah. It is not me. And that's actually a really good place to start, by the way. So everybody just, just take a moment, turn to the person next to you and say, I'm not the Messiah. Okay. Or maybe you want to say, you're not the Messiah. Go ahead and do that right now. So, so John talks about who he is, and he uses this remarkable picture. He says, I told you, I'm not the bridegroom. I'm the friend of the groom. He's using an image here from Hebrew weddings. There would be a character who had an official role, kind of like a best man in the weddings in our day. But the Hebrew word for this was called the shoshpin, who's more like a friend of the groom. He would provide a lot of the ceremonial functions that a best man would uh, in weddings in our day. But then the final task of the shoshpin was he would stand in front of the bridal tent where the bride would be inside at the end of the day's festivities. 
He would stand guard there so nobody got to the bride before the bridegroom. And it would be dark, and you would hear the sound of the bridegroom's voice. And when he heard the sound of the groom's voice, his final task was to step aside so the groom could go in to see the bride. Then he would have the joy of knowing, I did my job. I helped my friends. And now the groom and the bride are together. John says, that's me. I'm not the groom. The bride belongs to the groom. The church belongs to Jesus. She's not mine. The people aren't mine. If I try to grab for the joy that belongs to him, I will not get his joy and I'll lose my joy. So don't you think when other people are going to Jesus instead of me, that it's causing me to lose my joy. My joy is fulfilled. I'm the friend of the groom and I'm so glad the groom is here. By the way, as a church, we want to reach every single person we can for Jesus Christ. But not only that, but some months ago, I was talking to somebody about other churches in our area, and he said something about the competition. And gang, other churches are not our competition. Thank God for every church in El Dorado that preaches Jesus. The more God breathes life into his church, whatever church, wherever church, the better it is. Then John has this amazing statement. He must grow greater. I must grow lesser. In other words, my life is not centered on me. And this is so important for us to understand about the way life works. The more my ego is at the center of my life purposes, the more miserable I'll be. The more God is at the center of my life, it's this strange paradox. When I die to my ego, when I put God in the center of my life, the greater my life, the bigger the world. I must grow lesser. He must grow greater. That's the kingdom. That's life. By way of contrast, there was a movie a long time ago called Amadeus. Anybody remember this movie? Anybody see this? Okay, a handful of you. It's this amazing story of a musician by the name of Antonio Salieri. He was very gifted and competent, but he recognizes that Mozart is a genius. And Mozart is this obnoxious character, and it grates on Salieri that God made Mozart the genius and not him. And Salieri is convinced that God has done him wrong because he can't be happy while Mozart is in the world. And so this is what Salieri says to God. He says, from now on, we are enemies, you and I. Because you chose for your instrument a boastful, lustful, smutty, infantile boy and gave me for reward only the ability to recognize the incarnation. Because you are unjust, unfair, unkind, I will block you. I swear it. And the reality is, Salieri had amazing gifts that put him in the upper echelon of composers. An amazing privilege. He also could have had the gift of recognizing the greatness in Mozart and said, what a great thing it is to live in a world where there's a Mozart and have the whole world listen to and love that music. But all he could see was, I'm not Mozart. God has done me wrong. The idea that he might find joy in humbling himself and being able to applaud the greatness of somebody else never occurred to him. In the end of the movie, is just chilling. If you've seen it, you'll recall. Salieri is an old man at this point, and he's with a priest, and he's making this accusation against God. He's convinced in his mind that it's unanswerable, that he's right and God has done him wrong. 
And he says to the priests, I will speak for you, Father. I will speak for all the mediocrities in the world. I am their champion. I am their patron saint. And then he's wheeled out into the hallway of this asylum where there are uh, insane and wretched people lining the hallways. And he says to them all, mediocrities everywhere. I absolve you. I absolve you. We live in this crazy world. And I have to compare myself. I have to be in the eagles. How do I live in another way? Here's a couple questions to take home. One is, who am I comparing myself to? Who am I comparing myself to? I want to invite you to think about this one for a moment. I probably won't compare myself financially to Bill Gates or somebody like that. It'll be a person down the street, somebody quite close by, perhaps somebody sitting next to you in the row this morning. Just be really honest about that. Ask those questions God asked of Cain. Why am I so angry? What, do I, what is it that I really want? Who would my best self be? And then ask, what's the joy God has for me? What's the task God has assigned me? God hasn't asked me to be somebody else. You know, I don't have to be Mozart or David or Saul. I just have to be me. And God is calling you to be you. And I promise you, I promise you, there is joy in loving the people around you and doing the things God has called you to do and giving the gifts God has called you to give and stretching the gifts that God has called you to stretch. And I promise you, there is joy in this. Then if you want a little extra credit work, anybody in here want some extra credit work? I don't care. I'm going to sign it to you anyway. Okay. All right. Take that person that you're most prone to envy, most prone to compare yourself to. Okay? Get that person in your mind and pray that God would cause them to succeed this week like never before. Just say, God, would you let that person soar? Would you unleash their gifts in unprecedented ways? And then, of course, you don't do this on your own power. We don't do this on our own strength. We're leaning on the kingdom. I ask Jesus, would you help me with this all the time? Every time I'm tempted to compare myself to somebody else that becomes a little prompt for prayer. Jesus, would you help me with this? By the way, Jesus knows all about envy. You may have never noticed this tiny little phrase here, but this is from the story of Jesus. The text says, Pilate saw it was out of envy that the chief priests had handed Jesus over to him. Envy is what killed Jesus. Everybody's going to him. That means that, we're not, that they're not going to us. They're not cheering us on. We have to kill this guy. Want to go out to the field? It's the story of the human race. Here's the last little story. <laughs> I love this one. This is kind of funny. There's a great hope and a, and a great call to it. It's at the very end of the Gospel of John, and Jesus is restoring Peter. See, Peter's so human, and he's messed up in all these different ways. And Jesus is kind of recommissioning Peter, and he tells him, feed my sheep. And then at the very end, he tells Peter the kind of death that Peter's going to die. Peter finds out that he's going to suffer, and it's going to be very hard. But he's going to have the opportunity to glorify God with it. 
And there's an eternity of joy, joy that lies before him. And Jesus tells Peter about this. And then this weird thing happens. Peter sees John going by. And the text says, when Peter saw him, he asked, Lord, what about him? Now, there's this little dynamic that's going on between Peter and John that you have to know about. Okay, John in this gospel is called the disciple that Jesus loved. And I love the ring of that. The disciple that Jesus loved. Peter is not. At the Last Supper, we're told that John reclined next to Jesus at the table. His head, because they would sit on the floor, would be right next to Jesus. So he's in the seat of honor. At the resurrection, we're told in this gospel that John and Peter raced each other to the tomb. This is, uh, somebody actually kept record of this, kept track of this. And so we're actually told that John got there first. And they're having a race. Who can make it to the tomb first? John outruns Peter. After the resurrection, when the disciples are fishing, this, uh, this uh, figure comes to them and John says to Peter, it is the Lord. In other words, Peter doesn't recognize who it is. John recognizes and says to Peter, hey, Peter, I know who it is. Over and over again, John, John, John. You know, if, if this were the Brady Bunch, it would be Marsha, Marsha, Marsha. And so Peter sees John after being told this and says, Lord, what about him? John, 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 it's always John. He's your favorite. He's the disciple you love. If you love him so much, why don't you make him Pope? That kind of thing. And Jesus answers, if I want John to remain alive until I return, what's that to you? You must follow me. It's like Jesus is saying, if you keep your eyes on him, you'll be miserable. If you keep your eyes on me, you'll be filled with joy. And there is no life, only death in this constant. How come I can't have what you have? So be who you are and who God has created you to be. To follow Jesus, that's life. That's how you stop comparing. And that's how you keep community. Let's pray. I want to invite you to take a moment of self-examination doing really honest self-examination is a very important part of our spiritual life and spiritual growth, and it's often neglected in our day. So just take a moment, real honest, just you and God. Who are you likely to compare yourself to? It could be somebody who seems more successful, more attractive, has a better family. Take a moment and tell your heavenly father about it. God already knows it's not going to surprise him. And then ask God for his help. God, you know how that little virus gets inside me and eats away at my soul. I know it keeps me from love and joy and gratitude. God, would you liberate me and free me and deliver me? And especially, God, thank you for Jesus. Our prayer is that he would grow greater while we grow less, that you would more and more be at the center of our lives and that ego and sin would just die. And we pray this in Jesus' name, amen.